in verses 1 through 8 tonight. And as we continue this in Solomon's pursuit for the meaning of life, bear in mind that much of what what he has said is with the worldly viewpoint that he's viewing these things. And uh, viewpoint that has given God no consideration. He looks at life and he sees just how messed up it is in a lot of these situations that we've looked at and how hopeless you and I are if all there is in our, in our life is things of this world. Uh, in our text tonight, we're going to find the socioeconomic uh, conflict, if you will, uh, from the perspective of the vanity of, of uh, a godless life, uh, not thinking about God at all. Maybe we could even term it a atheistic uh, belief and a way of thinking in, in one's life. And these verses tonight that was read just a moment ago give us a challenging observation. But we shall at least, I believe, consider those in light and thinking of the Christian's perspective of of living and and how we should pursue life in our own life. In verses 1 through 3, the very first part that we see, he says, I returned and considered all the oppressions, the oppression of the godless power, Then he says in verse 1 there, I considered all the oppression done under the sun. And if you remember in chapter 3, at the very end of chapter 3, Solomon notes the value of being content with what you have. You think about that in Christianity today. Paul says, I've learned to be content with whatever state I am in. And that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? Having contentment in our life. I can remember growing up, young boy, and even not too many years ago, not being content uh, with things that I had. I'm more content now that I've gotten older and matured a little more uh, than what I used to be. Um, used to, my, my, uh, my yard had to look just like I had to have it cut on a certain day, and it had to be this and had to be that. And once I learned to be a little more content, I didn't have to do those things. Uh, and it, and it kind of lessened up a little things in my life. Uh, didn't, those things didn't bother me as much. But again, as we go on <clears throat> in this thought that he considered all the oppression done under the sun, he considers the in, in, uh, inequity and evil of the oppressively greedy people in the world. And I want us to think about that tonight. And these people that we're talking about here, he's saying, he says, so I return to consider all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And then he goes on and says, and behold the tears of such as that, as, uh, such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter as, at all. So we're going to talk about two different uh, sections of people tonight as we go through uh, this, this study. Again, the, the oppression, these are uh, successful from a worldly standpoint. Uh, the people who are doing the oppressing, if you will, uh, they may be in powerful positions, uh, either politically or economically, but they have no moral compass is what he's referring to. They're driven by greed. As we look in verse 8, it speaks of there and the selfishness. And most are miserable. 
You ever thought about that? A lot of times we look from the outside looking in and we say, boy, they've got everything. They've got all this material things. They've got all these blessings. They've got all these things. Life is just great. But realistically, on the outside, you may see happiness, but on the inside, what? They're miserable, aren't they? Yeah. And that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. Those type of people who are in those positions that Solomon is relating this to, the oppression of godless power, and then all the oppression that is under the sun. In the latter part there of verse 1, it says, The oppressed are in tears, but they find no comforter. You know, here's the one thing, uh, the one who is living in misery. He's taken of advantage of by the powerful and, and seems powerless, powerless uh, to stop it. Uh, whether it be politicians or whether it be rulers or business people or, or whatever, but their main thing is that they're greedy. And we see that their decisions make more difficult for the working class. And you know what I'm talking about tonight. Those people who are above us, the middle class people, if you will, that make political decisions and economic decisions that bring oppression upon, upon us. And we, we're feeling that right now, aren't we? You look at gas prices and you look at prices of eggs. <laughs> uh, I was talking about it the other night. Uh, I needed some chickens. And... Uh, we, uh, man and I were discussing that the other day, and then Jamie Crockett told me, he said, no, you don't need no chickens. And then uh, Ben sent me some pictures of chicken houses uh, or chicken uh, coops or whatever, and uh, I'm, I might get into egg business. Uh, there's some little girls sell eggs around here too, I think. Uh, so y'all can buy their eggs, and maybe I need to start buying from them. But anyway, uh, eggs are out, outrageous, but it's oppressing those of us, right? Those of us who are in the middle class. Solomon's talking about that. The oppressed are in tears, but they have no comforter. Now you say, well, what do you mean? We always say, well, we feel sorry for those people who are impressed, those are ourselves, and this, that, and other. But is it possible that the oppressed people that Solomon's talking about here that they are godless. Is it possible for an oppressed person, a poor person that lives in poverty, to be a godless person? Well, of course, the answer is what? Yes, it is. It's very, very Because they become so rooted in their anger and in their misery that they lose God. Now, you think about that. You say, because often we think about those who are oppressed and those who are poor being meek, and, and, and there are those people. But a lot of people, even like ourselves, allow things of the oppressors, if you will, to take and drive us down and drive us away from, from God. You know, it's hard for us to survive or to get ahead, and, and there's misery. But you know, we're talking about what Solomon's referring to, says they have no comforter. Note that this section is observing the worldly perspective, the oppressed is. It's not unusual, as I've just stated, that the oppressed to be a godless as the oppressor. They too can reject God and be bitter at the way things are. They can have ungodly and ungrateful attitudes, even those who are, who are in poverty or whatever the case may be. They can despise the rich and powerful with hateful hearts, as I just mentioned a moment ago. 
but it's even possible even resort to evil behaviors. So Solomon again is looking at life and its vanity. And he's looking at all aspects of the life from the top down, if you will. And not tonight he's looking at that thought of those who are oppressed. So on verse 1, the latter part of verse 1 again, on the other side is the oppressors with power. We talked about that again. Those who are corrupt rulers and greedy business leaders. If you remember, historically, Solomon would have considered King Saul or some of the leaders during that time of the judges who exploited the common people. He would also observe those things and those kings and governors and all the godless nations during that time around him. You know, it's just like all the wise, what was it, 700 wise and 300 concubines, I believe. You know, his, the, his downfall, I believe, was, was his women. And all of the, now a lot of these women, we've got to understand, as I dug in and, and studied this, uh, <clears throat> a lot of those women, we think about a woman having a wife, living in, in the same home and all this, but a lot of those women that were considered wives were given to him in a pack from other kings and other rulers. It drew them closer together. They'll give him one of their, uh, their daughters or whatever the case may, may have been. But these wives and these women that were coming into Solomon's life was bringing their idols and was bringing all the worldly things in to him. Now, when we talk about how we, our young people date and people that they're around, you know, as Vince says sometimes, show me your, uh, what, show me your friends and I'll show you who you are or whatever that case is. Um, that's kind of what we see. Um, so again... Talking about the oppressed. But what about that part where it says they have no comforter? They have no real hope beyond the empty treasures of this life. And we're talking about these people who are godless people and even those who are in poverty and even those who are in power that oppress those who are down. They, they have empty treasures. They, they focus on the temporal things and the things that can rust and decay. And we know what Matthew 6 and verse 19 and 21 through 21 says, doesn't it? Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We know that scripture very well. What does that teach us? Our Lord is telling us not to put our trust into things and material things in this world. Now, there's nothing wrong with us having material things. But he says, he goes on to say, he says, where your treasure is, is where what? Your heart will be also. So whatever I focus myself on, whatever is the most important thing to me, is going to be where my heart's at. And if that be the case, if material things, if that be where I focus, boy, I really want these material things, or I want this, and I want that, and i got to have this. That's where we're going to take and put all of our efforts in in our lives. The Bible speaks regularly on this. And, and it, it goes back into the Old Testament as well. If you remember, Israel and Judah both had corrupt leaders politically, religiously as well, and economically. They oppressed the poor. 
and exploited whomever they could. If you remember in the New Testament, our Lord spoke of the Pharisees who, who said in Matthew 23 and 14, he says, you devour the widow's houses. You're taking advantage of those people in a religious way or whatever way they were referring to there. But again, and then he goes on to say, and he says, then you, uh, you do that for a pretense of long prayers. You know, Titus 1 and verses 10 and 11, as we talked about in our Bible study this morning, false teachers uh, do, for, do the same thing for dishonest gain, subvert whole households. Remember James talks about the, the rich will drag you into court. James 5 and 1 and 6, the rich are called upon to weep and howl concerning the judgment to come. Now, most certainly, again, as we've studied before, there's nothing wrong with having money we know the scripture, don't we? We know it well. It says money is the root of all evil, right? No. It says the love of money. What we focus ourselves, where our treasures are laid up, where our efforts are put. If we always concentrate upon the material things or our money and gaining more money, is it ever, do we ever get enough? No, we don't, do we? When our mindset is messed up, we want more and more and more and more, and we'll give up things. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, those are some very legitimate questions tonight. In verses 2 and 3 of our text tonight, Says, he said, he praised the dead more than the living because they don't have to put up. One said, well, why does he say that? Because they don't have to put up with the ungodliness anymore. And then, you know, he, he makes the reference there, uh, the bed more than the living which are yet alive. He said, yea, better is he than both they which have not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Um, so again, He's talking there when he's, when he's saying the dead is, is better off than the ones that are living. Basically, he's saying it's better yet if I had never existed. You ever said that in a dire straits in your life in the time that you just, was just struggling and things were just terrible? Man, it would just been better off if I'd never been born. I've heard people say that in a flippant way. But you know what? That's some serious things, isn't it? Remember Job? Job chapter 3, verses 11 through 16 made that same statement, didn't he? Yeah. Because things were bad. While in his misery, he spoke like this. Jeremiah, in chapter 20 of Jeremiah, in verses 14 through 18, also addresses that same attitude. And we must remember that our text is approaching this. Psalm is approaching this from the standpoint that if in this life only we have hope, we are most pitiable. It is the vanity and the grasping for wind of life without hope in God. These oppressors that we've talked about thus far, those who are above have no God. Those who are oppressed, who are under or poor or whatever, they have no God. Because they're, they're, the oppression has driven them away from God 
How many times in your life, in my life, that our oppression, and I'm not talking about only with money, but things in our life are, are, are hard and, and it's difficult and we're in the valleys and not on the hilltops that it's driven us away from God. I can speak personally that I, that happened to me when I was younger. Because the easiest thing to do is what? Just give up. The easiest thing to do is just throw in the towel and say, well, I've had enough of this. But you know, as we've taught and, and seen before, those valleys bring you to the hilltops. And those things, those difficulties in life increase your faith if you allow them to. But when he says, <clears throat> let's make a little application. When we remember God, now notice this. We've talked about having the, the, the high position and the lowly having no God. But when we remember God, he says they have no confidence in the text, right? But he says when we remember God, we what? We have a confidence, don't we? We do. In those difficult times. More than likely, we will not be in the place of a powerful or political position and economically... I mean, you can be rich and, and be a ruler and faithfully serve God. But we do have a comforter. Remember Matthew 11 and verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke. You see, we call that the great imitation of our Lord. But we do have a comforter in those times. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Cast all your cares on him. Paul begins his letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 5 with the same thought and refers to a God of all comfort. Why do we pray what we pray? Every time that we stand before this congregation in this pulpit or here wherever, people say, God be with those who have lost their loved ones. And we say here in, in the weeks and the months and even years because that's not something you get over in a day or two. Why do we pray that? Because in faith we understand and we know that we have a comforter. We have one that will be with us. <clears throat> You know, you go on with that thought and, you know, God's available to all. He's available to the rich. He's available to the poor. You know, you think about Galatians 3 and 27. Think about what that says. I want to read that to you because I want to make a point here. Galatians 3 and 27, you know it well. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. If you've been baptized for the remission of your sins and come in contact with, with the water, which represents his blood, you have put on Christ. You are now a Christian. But notice what it goes on to say. It said there is neither Jew 
nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. I don't care what society says. Notice what it says. For ye all, or ye are all, one in Christ Jesus. We talked about that today, didn't we? Yeah. You see, nobody does not have access to God. Not a slave, not a Jew, not a Greek, not a male, not a female. Everybody has access to Christ Jesus and God. You know, and, and sometimes we, we say, well, you know, I wonder about those people and, and why they do what they do. Well, they have access just like everybody else. You know, our Lord noted it's possible for the rich to enter heaven with the help of God, Matthew 19 and 26. You know, he says, he says that it's, in, you know, it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle for a rich man to go to heaven. But with God, anybody can go to heaven, right? Yeah. Even the, those who oppress and those who have been oppressed, all can go if they're willing to be obedient to the ways of our Lord. You see, we have hope of something better. Better that, that no one in this life can take from us. You know what? As a man told me a long time ago, he says, when you go and you become educated, <clears throat> he says, people can take a lot of things from you. They can steal your home. They can take your money. They can take your car. They can take your clothes. They can, they can take whatever. But he says, once you're educated and you have been taught something and it's inside your brain, they can't take that away from you. Once it's in there, it's mine. They can't take it away from me. You see, it's kind of the same thought. We have hope. We have hope in Christ and in God. And I want to tell you, they can take a lot of things in our world today. The government can take this and they can take that. But they cannot take my hope of heaven. They can't do it. Now I can walk away from that hope and turn my back on God. but nobody can take that from us. You see, 1 Peter 1 and 3 and 4 talks about that inheritance, that incorruptible and undefiled body. You see, they can't take our hope. Back to that thought just a moment ago about is it better to have never been born. You know, we as Christians, we should never regret our birth. I don't care how hard things may come, whatever, but I'm going to tell you what, there went a, a lot of planning went into us through God's eyes. I often wondered as a little boy, why did the Lord place me where he placed me? Why did he place me with the family that I was placed with in the area of northwest Alabama, in the town of Tuscumbia, why did God place me there? I often just was curious, you know, why I just thought about that growing up. Because it wasn't always 
sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops. But I wondered why that it is. But you know what? I'm 53, soon to be 54. And I can tell you now, there's four reasons sitting on that bench over there that God placed me to where he did. There's a congregation of people right here at McCoinsville because God placed me where he did. I can look back on those things and know now why. It was part of God's big plan. The big plan, some plan that I didn't even have an idea about when I was 15, 16, 17 year old. You see, God has a plan for each and every one of us. And we have to be patient and let God's plan work. That's why we pray for big decisions and things in our lives. Speaking of patience, you know, it's about our perspective and determining to make the best of our situation. Yeah, I think about Paul and Silas very often during especially times of, of struggles and things in Acts 16. They had been beaten and thrown into prison. But they were singing praises to God. I think those stripes and, and marks of being beaten hurt. I'm sure they did. But they were singing and make them the best out of their situation. And still glorifying God. Paul writing the letter to the Philippians, and he had the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, 7 through 10. And, and God says, my grace is sufficient to you. Paul prayed three times that that would be removed. You know, you think about the book of Philippians, written from a prison cell, but what's, what's the whole theme of that? Rejoice. I say rejoice. Isn't that ironic? You know, we may face times of sorrow and tears because we've been defrauded or we're suffering in some way. But you know, James says, don't let that define you. James 1 and 4, let patience have its perfect work. Luke 21 and verse 19, our Lord was warning of the coming persecutions to his, his followers and disciples. And he said, by your patience, possess your souls. Let me suggest to you tonight, we need to let patience in our lives do what it is supposed to do to help perfect us in those times in our lives. What about four through eight of our passage? Speaking of the envied by his neighbor, again, I saw that for a toll and every skill and uh, skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Solomon urged the class envy here. He's dealing with the, with the have-nots who envy those who have. When one is jealous of a neighbor because he has something, you, you, don't, you don't have, that's not good and productive for us. How many times, we've heard the expression, we've got to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths or whatever the case may be. That's not good for us. 
It's also the perspective of the world, something that we see far too much around us today. I'm going to tell you tonight, we are living in an entitlement society where those who are materially successful are villainized and made to feel guilty because of the work that they've put into being successful. Let me say that again. We live in an entitlement society. I'm entitled to what you have even though I'm not willing to, to put in the work and the education and the time and all the things that you've done, I'm entitled to what you have even though I choose not to do anything. I'm going to tell you, that is not a biblical principle and it is totally against what God has said. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. But we live in that type of society, don't we? An entitlement society. And Solomon here is talking about those who are envying their neighbors. I've seen brothers and sisters in Christ get very envy and upset with people in the church when they've done well and for themselves and say horrible things about that person. You see, this is the class envy, and Solomon called it vanity and grasping for the wind. I call it sinful. A danger to society, being selfish. And then in, our, in the rest of 4 and 8 there, he says, The fools fold his hand and consumes his own flesh. He speaks to the sloth here. He speaks to being lazy. You know, of course, that was one who doesn't want to work. But expects others to take care of them. You see, again, our society today is not a biblical principle how people look at things. Um, I asked the question, whatever happened to people who says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something of myself no matter what it takes. You see, that's the kind of children we need to be raising. We need to be raising children that are, are, are wanting to work and wanting to provide for their families and take care of, of their daughter. You, you, that's what you want as a father. I'm going to gain a, a son-in-law soon. And in preparation of gaining that son-in-law and, and before we even knew who he was going to be, I was praying for someone who was going to take care of my daughter, number one, spiritually, but physically. I didn't want her bringing some old boy in. Just, well, I've been, I've been at 12 different jobs and can't hold none of them. We'd have had a problem with that. But again, Solomon speaks to that. He goes on and, <clears throat> and he says, he referring to the slugger in Proverbs 6 and 6 through 11, go to the ant, you slugger. Talks about there, a little folding of the hands will produce poverty. You know, a question for you. If your lifestyle tonight, the decision to be slothful, do you really have the right to envy those who are prosperous. No, we don't. 
Verse 6, he goes on and says, A handful with quietness. Better to have a handful of quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. Verse 7 and 8, there he goes on. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. But he still is consumed with his work. And see, we're going to the other extreme there in verses 7 and 8. Talking about the lazy there in the very beginning, but then we move to the workaholic. Hmm. He's alone because all that he or she does is focus on their work. Some who are greedy have no family or lose their family and friends because they become so consumed with work and their wealth. And as Solomon describes this one as never being satisfied with what he or she has. No matter how much he or she has, it's never enough. As we close, being content. There's no virtue in wealth or poverty. Money and stuff is morally neutral. It's about the perspective and how you manage what you have. Paul wrote in Philippians 4 and verses 11 and 12, I've learned to be content in whatever state that I am in. Being lazy is a sinful thing, even just as evil and as and being greedy. Solomon observed that we ought to enjoy what we have. That is a blessing from God. Everything you have and everything I have is a blessing for God. Don't ever forget that. From the biggest item to the littlest is a blessing from God. And not to be an envious person. God wants you and I to enjoy life and whatever prosperity we've been blessed with. But he wants us to remember him and appreciate what we have. And those are the good lessons that we teach our young people. Not to be wasteful. To be prudent in those things in life and, and, and to, to live for God and know that everything comes from God. I believe that is why in the study we continue to return to the whole thought of Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 and 14, the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Obey him. How blessed are you with material gain? Is God pleased with your attitude in the things that we have tonight that he's blessed us with, so richly blessed us with tonight? God's blessed you with another opportunity to, to be together tonight in this service. He's blessed you another opportunity to become a Christian, to put Christ on in baptism and serve him faithfully all the days of your life. And he'll be, you'll be blessed. He'll bless you beyond measure if you'll put him first. I believe that with all my heart because I've seen it too many times in my own personal life. Tonight, maybe you need to come home and repent of sin and confess that sin. We encourage you to do that. Whatever sin may be in your life, confess that sin, repent of it, let us pray for you and with you. Please come. Together we stand and as we sing.